I love what Danette said, that we've got to rethink this cultural thing. Is this culture really inclusive? And so if it's not, they, the company is going to have a turnover problem. If we're not careful, it starts to sound like a club um, or it can even become an excuse. We constantly on a daily basis have to monitor our emotional expenditure. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. We've all heard the sobering statistics. More CEOs of Fortune 500 corporations are named John than are women. In the U.S., women comprise nearly half the labor force, but hold just 21% of C-suite positions. Those positions include CEOs and those who report to them directly. For women of color, the share of C-suite jobs falls to just 4%. But some local black women have defied the odds. They've overcome both those dismal statistics and a host of challenges on the job to rise to executive positions. Three of them were recently featured on a panel by the St. Louis Forum, which promotes the advancement of women in the St. Louis area. And now they join us today to share their observations and experiences with a larger audience. And that includes Sundra Bryant. She is the Senior Director of HR Operations Services at Centene Corporation. Sundra, welcome. Thank you, Sarah. And we're also joined today by Danette Greer. She's the Global Enterprise Client and Partner Development Lead for Worldwide Technology. Danette, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. And last but not least, we're joined by Adrienne Bracey. She is the CEO of the YWCA of Metro St. Louis. Adrienne, welcome. Thank you, Sarah. It's good to be here. So, Adrian, I want to start with you. As a black woman who's also a CEO, does it sometimes feel like you're part of the business world's smallest club? Absolutely, Sarah. Um, and, and that's reality. You just gave the statistic of only 4% of, of black women are really joined in the boardroom. So um, it's a reality today. And that's why we're here on your radio show to make sure that we change that for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, Adrian, I understand before you came to the YWCA, you were working um, high up in the NFL for 18 years. You were the only black CFO there. What's a, a big challenge that comes in being in a situation where very few people look like you? Well, the challenge is not having anyone uh, that you can talk to that can relate to the issues that that are that you're dealing with and it's lonely it's really it's just lonely in that spot and so that's why we really need to change because you don't want to be the only black female in a room mm-hmm. in, in a c-suite you want others to have someone who can uh, like i said understand and some someone you could talk to Now, Zundra, you, like Adrian, graduated from a historically black college and then ended up in a corporate world that has a much different composition. Was that a culture shock for you? Uh, No, it wasn't a culture shock at all. I actually feel like, you know, going to HBCU prepared me because while I was in uh, college during that time, I also did internships with corporations Hmm. and uh, was familiar with the landscape I was going into. Uh, Probably the better question was corporate America ready for me. Uh, (laughs) That's a great way to frame it. And were they ready for you? (laughs) 
I think we had to figure that out, right? If I'm being honest, uh, I don't know if they were ready for me, but, you know, through all of my experiences, we've learned to work with each other better over the years. Hmm. Danette, that makes me think of, of an anecdote from you. I, I'm When you first started your career at a Fortune 100 company, you were told you needed to blend in more. What did you take that to mean? <laughs> Well, it was actually as interesting. It was actually a response to the way I walked, uh, that I drew attention to myself with the clothes I wore and the way I walked. <laughs> I was an uh, athlete in uh, high school and college, and so uh, I played basketball, and I suppose my saunter uh, was offensive. Um, but keep in mind, I mean, look, I was in a manufacturing environment as an uh, engineering intern uh, around it. You know, I'm Gen X, so we're talking the early 80s. Or excuse me, yeah, late 80s, sorry. Uh, so, <laughs> Lord knows I don't need to add the years. Uh, <laughs> but I think it gets back to a point that Adrian made, and that is when you're in an environment without uh, uh, folks who can provide context for you. I, I never even understood uh, or was able to translate what that can mean in terms of real meaningful growth for mm-hmm. myself personally, I was left with the conclusion that I was, this environment was not hospitable for me. And I think that's what results from being in an environment where you do not have peer counterparts. Um, you end up on all the time. You end up constantly on edge about how am I doing? Where am I fitting in? Do I look like the fraternity that exists outside of me? And, and so how do you find that balance there where you don't want to change just because somebody doesn't like your saunter, but at the same time, this is a world that you want to rise within? Did you find yourself initially um, feeling pressure to make those changes, Danette? Uh, absolutely. Look, um, at the time, I did not find the industry to be hospitable. Um, I went a different direction uh, uh, post the studies uh, in my career. Uh, based on that hospita- uh, hospitability, I found greater acceptance, greater opportunity for both my ideas, uh, the diversity of my thought in the technology realm. Because at the time there was Y2K, right? There was this this innovative space where it wasn't about what you, less about anyway, what you look like. Uh, but then I became inundated with the idea that I'm a woman in a male-dominated industry, <laughs> so I felt like I was getting it from so many different angles. And much like Zundra mentioned, it w- it became a question of who's ready for me because I have something to bring and I'm not going to quit. Adrian, I imagine you dealt with some of those same things. The NFL, I imagine, that can't be a, a position where there's a lot of women at the top there. How did you deal with, with those issues that Danette is describing? Well, pretty much just like what Danette said. You know, you, you don't want to change your authenticity. I, you know, I am a black female and, and that is what it is. So for me, um, I joined organizations that gave me uh, that encouragement, like the National Association of Black Accountants. Hmm. I was very, very active with NABA and um, I'm a member of a sorority, a black female sorority, and as well as the black MBA association. So what I did is I really surrounded myself with like-minded people who gave me that encouragement um, that I needed because, like you said earlier, going to the historically black college uh, also gave me that that nurturing 
And so just, um, so that really helped me, Sarah, just being a part of organizations, black organizations um, that really filled the void of going to work every day, not having like-minded people at work. However, there were a couple of male executive, black male executives um, in the NFL that I I became close to. One of them actually turned out to be my mentor. Hmm. He ended up being the CFO for the Major League Baseball, Jonathan Mariner. And so he, uh, he was my mentor. And so uh, I leaned on him a lot when it came to decisions or disagreements or just advice. Hmm. So you were able to find that mentorship. It wasn't someone who had to be a woman. Um, he, he was there for you and was able to fill that role. Oh, absolutely. And I've had white uh, Eddie Jones, who was the executive vice president for the Miami Dolphins, my first career in, in the NFL. He was my sponsor, actually, uh, which is why I was able to be promoted uh, in the ranks. So uh, I found that, and it wasn't by design, Sarah, mm-hmm. I wasn't looking for a male mentor. They just happened to be the person or that was at in the space at the right time. Hmm. Sandra, hearing um, Adrian describe it, it sounds like she was able to find support from, from black women outside of work and then at work was able to find support from people who maybe couldn't understand the entire experience but could still provide her that mentorship she needed. Is that a dichotomy that you've had to, to pursue as well? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I've been a part of multiple organizations external to my corporation for the very same reason. The Professional Organization of Women Incorporated in particular here in St. Louis was pivotal in uh, me and my you know, professional success uh, and being able to support me when I couldn't find it internally. But also internally, though, you know, there's uh, employee resource groups, business resource groups, you know, things of that nature, affinity groups, they've been called over time, too, that have also been instrumental uh, in creating and different organizations to create that camaraderie across the corporate landscape internally so that we can start supporting each other and elevating our voices in the organization to promote change. Hmm. Danette, I've, I've heard that you've kind of um, pushed back on this idea where companies like to talk about um, this is our culture or we're looking for somebody who's a good fit here. I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts as, as it relates to that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So I, I am a, I believe in culture, but I believe culture as a label um, is too easily misconstrued. I think we need to be very careful and very intentional about how we're defining culture. Hmm. Because if we're not careful, it starts to sound like a club um, or it can even become an excuse to alienate those who are not like us. And that's something that I think is, is, uh, as a culture, Black people have had to deal with for the longest. I mean, your entire last segment is an example of what it looks like when people fear those not like us mm-hmm. and they fear their empowerment. And if my empowerment looks like a threat to you, how do we drive forward these all important DEI initiatives that every company is investing heavily in? How do we sponsor the change that keeps ourselves as organizations relevant in the future if what we're doing is tying ourselves to cultures of the past? I just think we need to be very careful. I think it's 
the right focus, it needs more clarity and rigor. Hmm. Sandra, do you identify with that? I know know you've dealt with some times when you've had new ideas and you've been told that's not how we've done things. How does that land with you as a Black woman? Oh, it's familiar. (laughs) It's a familiar space as a Black female, similar to what Danette and Adrian saying, when you are the only or the first in the room and you have your ideals, usually that's the uh, response you get initially. And what, you know, you have to make a decision is, is the emotional energy that it's going to take to persevere worth the effort? And a lot of times it is, and sometimes it isn't, right? And so you, we constantly on a daily basis have to monitor our emotional expenditure in the environments that we work in in order to preserve our own personal health and wellness. Hmm. Um, So it's definitely something that is unique being a person of color, a black female in particular, uh, that intersectionality of color and race uh, and gender actually, you know, creates a double burden for us. And it's something that we have to navigate that nobody else uh, with the, you know, the majority of people do not. So it's definitely a familiar place. But the question becomes, if your answer is that, are you really inclusive, right? It's one thing to have representation and seat at the table. It's another thing to actually feel included in your ideas being embraced. Hmm. Adrian, I've seen a lot of studies that suggest that um, statistically companies begin with a good pool of female hires, and, and sometimes they're even beginning with a good pool of people of color, and that this is more of a retention problem and a promotion problem than a recruitment problem. Do you think that's right based on, on your experiences uh, on a more personal level? Yes, Sarah. Uh, personally, I have uh, seen that over my career where you and I think Danette kind of spoke to it. it. It's the culture fit. So you you hire uh, a qualified black woman, and for the first couple of months, um, it's like, oh wow, this is a good fit. But then after time, you know, the company starts to feel that if you're not fitting into the culture, then you're going to have a problem. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. And I've had that actually happen to me uh, over my career of fitting into the culture. And it's a burden. Um, it's it's a true burden. I think Zandra said that. It's really a burden trying not to be yourself. Because, you know, we talk about being authentic. And so if you're trying to fit into a culture that's not aligned with your personal values or your personal mission, then chances are you, you're not going to stay so now that company is going to possibly lose money because, you know, they're, they're going to have this turnover problem. Mm-hmm. And so finding a way uh, to allow people to be authentic. And I love what Danette said, that we've got to rethink this cultural thing. Is this culture really inclusive? And so if it's not, they, the company is going to have a turnover problem. Uh, black women and just people of color in general. Adrian, when do, how do you decide whether to stay or whether to fight to change that culture? What, what choice did you have to make in your life when you said you were in that situation? Uh, well, I, and I have had to make that choice before. Um, I have certain values. Mm-hmm. And so if and integrity is, is one of them. 
And if, if it doesn't feel like that's the direction of a company, um, if I have to change my beliefs, something that I really stand for and I truly believe in it, uh, I'm a spiritual person. And so if it goes against my spiritual values or in, or and it doesn't even have to be spiritual, it's just my values in general, um, yes, I have to make that decision because I'm not going to be able to change the culture. Hmm. That's just not possible. Um, Zundra, is that unless something? it's my own company. Yeah, you know, if, once you're company. in charge, then <laughs> then you can change that, right? Yeah, yeah, it's my own company. Zundra, have you had to come to that same conclusion in your career? Oh my goodness, those who know me that listen, I have navigated probably more changes in my career, both company and internal positions, uh, than probably the average person. Because I truly believe uh, what Adrian has said: your values. And respect, right? How you respect somebody is a tail sign, right, of whether or not you embrace them and all that they bring to the organization. And then the brick ceiling is real, right? Mm -hmm. And any time that I've gotten to the point where I feel like either I'm being disrespected or not respected to the level that I agree with, or I feel like I've hit a brick wall, a brick ceiling, then I've chosen to exercise my uh, choice and leaving either a position or a company. And that's how I've gained and had to navigate my personal career in order to continue to elevate, uh, you know, to different levels of leadership um, across the landscape. Hmm. And that's not always easy to navigate. And that in and of itself comes with drawbacks because, you know, you're in a constant state of reestablishing yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, when you do that. And then you also, you know, have to expend a lot of time externally networking. And I have a term that I call street credibility. I have to have a lot of street credibility in order to navigate that changes. That means it's not just about who I know, it's about who knows me so that when I'm ready to make that change, I'm a familiar face. And so I stay connected with organizations like the St. Louis Forum and others that's been mentioned here to continue to promote that. Hmm. So that's a harder way to get promoted, but if you have to go that route, you're going to go that route. Pretty much. <laughs> Danette, do you, do you identify with that? Oh, my God. I'm so, I apologize. I think I was about to chime in. I'm so used to our casual powwows. Listen, there's a lot that's been said. You know, Sandra talks about that emotional expenditure you know, something I wish people would understand is just that the emotional investment that goes into having to um, moderate oneself at such a deep identity level, right? Mm -hmm. um, that I'm not perceived as a cultural ad, but a potential cultural distraction or detractor, right? I'm so unwilling potentially to disrupt my culture with this new energy. And it's not just the, it's a different energy. I bring a different perspective. Um, I bring a different voice. And uh, at times it doesn't matter how constructive we may try to be, if it doesn't feel like what you're used to, it can feel disruptive to culture. Uh, that is important, I think, a salient point that should come out of this. Um, you know, and as Zundra talks about that getting promoted, look, you know, at what point does what differentiate you get 
get lost in the assimilation process that uh, Adrian talked so eloquently about. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I have to assimilate, what part of my value have you lost? I think it was Steve Jobs who's often quoted as saying, we don't hire people to tell them what to do. We hire them to tell us what to do. Hmm. So if you're bringing me on, are you allowing me to bring my whole self to the workplace? This is something we're focusing on relentlessly uh, with my current employer, WT, where we talk about bringing your whole self to work. So we have all these ERGs, pride and and shades, our our multicultural African-American group, even our Asian-American group, and, and, and not to broaden the scope too much farther, but even as we talk today about the the things that are affecting our Asian American brothers and sisters, these are things that we deal with in the black community every day. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing is that it's the same, uh, it's the same disposition just directed at a different class. And I think we have to pause as we're having these conversations and we're listening to start talking about What are we going to do about it tangibly? Mm -hmm. We cannot always be reactive to the threats and the fears of those who feel like they have to defend their territory every time it looks like somebody like me is being empowered. Hmm. We have to get past that. If not, these listening sessions will start to sound more like entertainment instead of real actionable discussions that drive change. Hmm. And that's my call to action for anyone listening is to really think deep and hard about you hear these stories, but what does it mean? Are you going to grab the hand of your African-American, Asian-American brothers and sisters and pull them along? Are you going to be a champion or a shoulder or part of a tribe where you can you know, promote uh, uh, or be a predecessor, right? Or even uh, uh, a buoy and inform and mentor those who are coming next. We own that responsibility, those of us who have experienced success and those who are allied with us in creating a more equitable environment. Hmm. Well, that's such an important call to action for all of us to hear here. In our final, we just have a couple minutes left here. Um, I want to get, I mean, you guys have managed to persevere and persist and rise to the top in such a difficult environment. And I would love to just get a piece of advice for someone who might be listening and is feeling disheartened or feeling like they don't fit in within their company and but is not ready to give up. What advice would you have for them? Adrian? let's start with you? Well, you know, there's uh, many, many to, to share. And I w- definitely want my colleagues to have some time. But one advice that has really helped me throughout my career is not taking it personal. Hmm. Um, and that's what I really had to learn in the NFL, working with men, especially a dominated field by men, just n- not taking it personal, not allowing their ignorance uh, to be my reality, because, you know, I, I can't control them. I can only control Adrian and my response. So I, I've chosen my response not to take it personal. And when I don't take it personal, then I don't get too emotional and, and, and make rational, unrational decisions. So that's the one thing that has really helped me working, especially uh, as a black woman in, in a male-dominated environment, was not to take it 
personal. Hmm. That's some great advice there. And unfortunately, I hate to say this, but we are out of time. And there is so I would love to hear even more advice from from the people we have on this panel. But I hope for anybody who's been listening, that you've picked up on on many of the advice that they have shared along the way, because there is just so much here. Um, I just I want to take some notes myself so that I can go back and, and put these things into play. So Adrian Bracey, CEO of the YWCA of Metro St. Louis, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And Sandra Bryant, Senior Director of HR Operations Services at Centene Corporation. Thank you. Thank you. And last but not least, uh, Danette Greer, Global Enterprise Client and Partner Development Lead for Worldwide Technology. Thank you. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having us. More reporting from the St. Louis on the Air team is available at stlpublicradio.org. And be sure never to miss a conversation by subscribing to our podcast. You can find St. Louis on the Air on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts on the App Store. St. Louis on the Air is produced by Evie Hempo, Lara Hamden, Emily Woodbury, and Alex Hoyer. The audio engineer is Aaron Dorr. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU the member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.